Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to season three of What I Wish I Learned. We are so excited to be back. Uh, it's been a long time. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been about a month. But don't think, guys, that this month has gone in vain for Noah and I. We have yeah, we've been working behind the yeah. scenes. We've been doing so much stuff. We've um, reimagined what this podcast can look like, yes. what it can do for you, what it can do for us. And honestly, it's it's you're not even going to recognize it anymore. It's going to be completely different. You guys aren't ready for how crazy this is going to be. So uh, we have a bunch of announcements to make, first of all. So the first announcement, as I'm sure you guys have noticed by now, if you're already listening to the podcast, the first announcement is that we have a brand new cover art for the podcast. So we are super excited about the new art. We've been working on it for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we finally came up with a de- with a design that we really like. Um, it's a it's definitely more accurate to what Steve looks like. <laughs> the old one kind of made him look a little bit a uh, little bit rounder in the face, a yeah. little, little less hair somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we love the new art, and we hope you guys love it too. We spent probably three or four different um, revisions, just you know, going through it to make sure yeah. that it was perfect for you guys. So we hope you love it. And the second announcement, and this is a big one, is that we have two brand new ways for you guys to help support us and the podcast. So just to give you guys some context, right now the podcast is costing us between $30 to $40 a month, and that's just for our hosting website, which allows us to be on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, all Stitcher. that stuff. Stitcher, of course. Can't forget about Stitcher. Um, yeah, so that costs us about 40 bucks a month just to be able to be listed on those on those websites. And so we would love um, just for the podcast to be able to support itself. And um, as of right now, all of that money is coming directly out of our pockets. Um, and also all of the microphones that we use, all of our software and equipment, um, all of our Chipotle runs. Yeah, it really adds up. Yeah, uh, unofficially sponsored by Chipotle. Officially sponsored by Alan. Yes. Who is um, with us in the studio today. <laughs> yes. Welcome, Alan. He's asleep. Okay. Well, tell him to wake up. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've we've definitely definitely invested a lot of our own money and a lot of our time into the podcast, and so we would love just for the podcast to be able to support itself and for us to be able to make um, you know a little bit of profit on it. Um, but enough about that. Let's get people excited about it. Yeah. So the. First big announcement that we have to make is that we are launching our very own merch line. Ooh, and the merch looks good. The merch is fire, it you guys. Is good. We have eight featured products currently. Um, your boy Steve, the host, the most amazing one. The hostess with the mostest. <laughs> has gone and used up his own time and designed the best looking merch. We got water bottles, premium water bottles. We got a mask with a mustache on it, phone cases, stickers. We got a dad hat. We got a dad hat. We got sweaters, t-shirts. They all have our signature red, which is looking great. Yes, and they all feature the new cover art designs as well. Yes, and they are not expensive. Yeah. Like going through it, hosting it, our uh, profit with it, the production of it, all of it is for the quality of stuff you're getting amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. And like these hoodies and these t-shirts, like they're actually t-shirts that you guys are going to want to wear. Like they're not just like, you know, uncomfortable, like bad quality, like they're going to be- Sticker shirts. Yeah. No, no. It's like sewn yeah, in nice, nice quality nice. stuff. Yeah. So you guys are going to love it. Please go check out the merch. It's at whatiwishilearned.com. We got our own website, people. Our very own website. It's whatiwishilearned.com. So mm. now that that's out of the way- Hey, what was the website oh, again? It's whatiwishilearned.com. Dot com. Not dot org, right? It's dot com. Dot com. What I wish I learned. Dot org dot com. was too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, guys, it looks good. 
I'm probably going to spend a lot of my own money buying all of the merch. Yes, um, same. So I'm supporting myself in a way here. Um, this isn't just a way to support us. It helps get the word out. You're wearing our logo elsewhere. You also get to have a really cool mask with a mustache. Yeah, on plus it. you can strike up a conversation if someone you asks go. you, like, "Hey, what's your, you know, what's your shirt about?" You can yes. tell them about the podcast. And so keep an eye on the website every month. Hopefully, we're going to be launching a new product with it too. Yeah. I have designed probably three to four times more stuff than we have listed currently. So keep an eye on it, guys. It's going to keep flowing. Yep. So yeah, every every month we'll hopefully drop a couple new items, a couple of new things for you to buy. So we're just going to stay fresh. Yeah, stay. That, that water bottle looks great. Though. It's sick. I'm, I'm actually probably going to cop the water bottle, <laughs> to be honest. All right. Um, well, that's part one of how you can support us. Yes. There is more to There's it. There's more to it. So the second way that you guys are able to support us now is that we are launching our very own Patreon page. So you know, what's a Patreon? Yeah, good question, Steve. So if you haven't heard of Patreon, it's essentially a subscription service that allows you to subscribe for premium content for your favorite creators, content creators, um, and in our case, the podcast. So, so we are people's favorites, correct? Yes, of okay. course. We're the best content creators on the internet. We're obviously. the fastest rising podcast in South Denver. Yeah, we're the fastest rising <laughs> podcast in Steve's apartment. Wow. <laughs> really does feel good to be on top. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, so if you guys haven't heard of Patreon, it's really awesome. And it's a great way to support us and support other creators. So we have multiple different tiers on the Patreon that you're, you guys are going to be able to subscribe to. So we have a $3 tier, a $7 tier, and a $14 tier. So the $3 tier will get you early access to all of our episodes. So two days in advance. Um, we're going to start posting every single Wednesday. From Very consistently. Very consistently. We're not going to miss any more weeks, no more days. It's going to be every single Wednesday from here on out. Yes. But Patreon subscribers will have the opportunity to listen to the episodes two days in advance. So on Ooh. Monday, all episodes will be available to the $3 Patreon subscribers. Um, also, for the $3 subscribers, we're going to be allowing you guys to participate in polls to help us decide um, what topics to cover for future seasons and for future episodes. So every once in a while, we'll have a poll on Patreon, which will allow you guys to have your voices be heard and uh, to give some input and um, directly interact with us on the podcast. So $3 a month, not that much money. It's less than a coffee a month, and it really, really helps us out. Um, and then the $7 a month tier um, is the big one. That's the one that we are really trying to push as much as we can because that is going to give you the best possible experience for the podcast. So the $7 tier gets you the same access as the $3 one. So you get early access to the, to the uh, episodes and also the voting power. Also, the $7 tier will include... Um, access to our live streams. We're going to start doing live streams every single month. And the $7 tier people will get exclusive access to those live streams. Um, we'll have behind the scenes video content that we'll be recording. Um, we'll so have additional content. Yeah, additional content that you guys can see. Um, any bonus episodes that we record in the future will be released exclusively on podcasts or uh, on, on Patreon. Mm -hmm. So not only do you get access to all of that exclusive content, but we will also be doing merch giveaways on our Patreon. So if you're subscribed to the $7 tier, you get one entry for our monthly merch giveaway. Our premium merch. Premium, high quality. Our signature red. Custom designed Ooh. merchandise. It looks really good. Yes. So... Every uh, every time you subscribe to the seven dollar tier, you get a you get one entry per month into the merch giveaway. Now the big Kahuna, the Sam tier, the Sam tier, <laughs> affectionately named the Sam tier, the fourteen dollar tier, the Mega Nerd tier. Yep. 
Not only do you get access to everything else before, um, but you also get exclusive access to a personalized video message that Steve and I will record for you. Thanking you for subscribing. Um, you also get two entries for the merch giveaway. That's two people. Not one. That's two That's entries. Two entries. You have double so you have the chance to chance. win. Exactly. And lastly, and this is the one that we're most excited about. So... Every $14 tier subscriber will be entered in a once a month drawing and whoever wins that drawing at the end of the month will be invited to join us as a guest speaker on the podcast. We even bought them a microphone and everything. We, we bought a whole third microphone and everything. So if you guys are in Colorado and you win, you'll be able to come visit with us in the studio and record with us. Um, and if you're out of town, if you're not in Colorado, we'll have you join us via Zoom. But this is a great way for you guys to um, really participate and get an opportunity to join us in the studio and um, help us record the podcast. So, And honestly, Noah and I are excited to have more people in on this with us. It's I mean, Noah and I, our success in the podcast is purely coming from our communities, the people that we're around right now, um, and the people in our lives. And so, to have the opportunity, and I know $14 may seem steep, like, oh, why do I have to pay to be on my friend's podcast or, you know, a friend of a friend's? But it helps us continue to move this forward, and that community that has gotten us this far, you now get to be part of it with us. Exactly. And guys, the, the reason that we're asking for support and asking for, you know, you know, you guys to buy our merch and to subscribe to the Patreon is not so that we can make money off the podcast and, you know, profit off of it and um, start making more money for ourselves. Every dollar that we make from Patreon and every profit that we make from selling the, the merch will go directly back into the podcast. So we won't see any of it. All of the money that we make will go into buying better equipment, um, setting up better live streams, which we're going to start doing for the Patreon, um, buying better equipment and more software and stuff like that. So um, all of that money is specifically going towards helping us create the best content that we can think so, about this you're not supporting noah and i you're supporting the message exactly so we would really appreciate if you guys check that out the patreon is patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n patreon.com forward slash w-i-w-i-l which is just w or what, what i wish i learned you know abbreviated link so. that into the Yes, that will be available in the uh, uh, description of the um, of each episode. So you guys will be able to just click on the link. It'll be right there. There will also be a link on our website, whatiwishilearned.com. And as a small way to support us, guys, Apple Podcast now has, or Spotify now has a five-star uh, option, correct? Yeah. So, so you can give us a rating on Spotify. Yeah, so if you're already following us on Spotify, you can now give us a rating uh, out of five stars, same way that you can do on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen on, on Spotify, which the majority of our audience does, um, please be sure to go in and rate us five stars on Spotify. It helps out with the algorithm, helps more people to see the show. Um, so that's a free way to support us if yeah. you don't feel like you know subscribing or whatever. But you do feel like so. it, and um, we'll see <laughs> your name on our list of people to invite over, because I'm assuming everyone's going to do the, the Sam tier. Yeah, of course, obviously. And ladies and gentlemen, the last annou announcement that we have today is that we are launching an Instagram page yes. specifically for the podcast. Some of you have may have may have already seen it as we have been kind of building this, um, you know, hype for season three. I gosh, the hype for Noah and I is real. I really hope you guys have been feeling it. That cool marketing campaign that we're doing with it. Um, so yeah, our Instagram page is launched. What's it called, Noah? 
It's called What I Wish I Learned. That's that's it. Oh, hey, uh, we kind of rebranded here, guys, slightly. Uh, we are no longer What I Wish I Learned in school. We are just What I Wish I Learned. So yeah. small little detail about our reboot here. Go uh, follow our page. We are yes. tired of bombarding all of our followers uh, with a weekly post. So if you are that person who needs a reminder or just wants to see the progress of our show, the Instagram page is really the way to go. Yeah. We will have all sure. of our links to the Patreon, to the website, um, and maybe some other content there. Yeah, maybe doing some giveaways on the Instagram page. Yes. Um, yeah, so make sure to go follow us on Instagram. Again, that's what I wish I learned. Um, just at what I wish I learned on Instagram and we'll be posting it on our personal, uh, stories as well. So you guys can see it, but, um, yeah, is that it? I think we got through all the announcements. Only took us seven minutes. All right, Noah, roll the music. Alright, now that we're done with all of our announcements, let's get into the good stuff. So, a bit of our redesign, a bit of our reboot here with what I wish I learned is we are no longer doing one long continuous story topic anymore. We had a great study on Afghanistan, we had an amazing study on Vietnam, um, but we found a lot of people can uh, get overwhelmed with uh, the idea of having one continuous long story. If you missed one episode, you kind of feel like you're really behind. With this new style of our podcast, we're going to have this umbrella theme or like an encompassing theme over our new season. So season three, surprise, surprise, the war on drugs. Every episode is going to be about the war on drugs. However, every single episode is going to be a standalone episode. If you missed today's episode and you tune in next week, you won't have missed any content that connects it. Uh, therefore, we have this general theme, yet every episode is standalone. And we believe that that's going to be the best form of getting information out to you guys. This doesn't drop the quality of info by any means. Our quality is still going to be, you know, as what you expect. You as know. good as it has been. Yeah, which is a 10 which out of 10. Is quality, yeah. Yeah, it, it's as quality as our merch. <laughs> Check out the merch. <laughs> what I wish I learned.com. So now that that's out of the way, welcome to the war on drugs. War on drugs, baby. Yes. So quick disclaimer and objective for us. This is by no means in any way to promote drugs or to make them look cool or to uh, normalize them. Yes. Just so we're clear, what I wish I learned does not support the use of drugs in any way. But this is more to shed light on really an issue that, you know, has a cool name, you know, the war on drugs, a war, but is reality just something that is, you know, killing the country in a lot of the ways and destroying a lot of families and the effects of a drug trade and why our solutions to it the last 50 years have not worked. But to understand the issue, we first need to understand each factor that plays into the war like the drugs themselves, the people involved, and who is involved in stopping them, and why haven't our tactics quite worked yet? And so that is our objective with it, you know, just so we're clear about that. And we're going to be 
talking about this in three separate forms. I guess four. We're going to talk about the individual levels of people involved. And that's like the small scale people. Then we're going to be talking about the upper like echelons of this trade. Then we're going to be talking about like the economics of it. And every part specifically as like every episode is going to be a different category of drug. So this one is part one, which is cocaine. And fun. Yeah. <laughs> we love cocaine. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, cocaine is interesting as a drug, as all of them will be. We're going to be talking about cocaine, synthetics, marijuana, uh, all the likes. And so with cocaine, it is definitely probably one of the more popular, high, and like, you know, critical drugs, if we can say that, you know, it's, it's what you associate when you watch TV and drug use. And so it's, it's a natural start for us to talk about it. And cocaine has always been the most money-making drug of them all. Like you can, there's a certain character we'll talk about here who made $500 million a week on cocaine. A week? Mm-hmm. Not to spoil, spoil anything going into it, but yes, cocaine is... A, it's really widespread. B, it has really intense effects on a person. And it is, you know, just the drug when you imagine the war on drugs. So we're going to be covering the process of the production, the process of the creation of it, the transportation of it. And I think this is going to be the most interesting part for Noah and I, but the effects of it on your brain. And then after all that, we'll talk about how cocaine as a product has impacted our nation. All right. So let's start with the very basic foundation of what we know of as cocaine today. So cocaine comes from this plant. And it's a weed-like plant that grows indigenously in South America. Coca leaves. And Historically, these have always had some form of like stimulant, like a potential to them. Indigenous people of South America used to pick these leaves and chew on them, and it would give them like a small little like boost in their day, kind of like a small cup of coffee, or I guess you can equate it to nicotine as well because that's like a stimulant, not to the to the extent of like refined cocaine, but it was a small little boost. Um. However, with time and with a lot of science, we were, we, they were able to take this leaf, and we'll talk about the production of it here in a moment, and transform it into something bigger and more intense. And this would later become one of the largest exporters out of South America after oil, and specifically towards the United States. When cocaine hits the streets of America, it starts off in the club scene. Cocaine as a product will mess with your head to the point where you have, you know, you have these feelings of a lot of energy. And so people in clubs really got to, you know, really enjoy themselves on a night out. And it was a big issue in Miami in the 70s and the 80s. However, after some difference, you know, change in leadership in the cocaine trade, uh, it hits Wall Street. Those same, the same drug that gives people so much energy to have a, a party is the same drug that can have people make big trades, work long hours, and make a ton of money. Yeah. If you've ever seen Wolf of Wall Street, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Do they do a lot of cocaine in that movie? Yeah. Dang. 
Um, however, the natural evolution from there, from a niche market of club goers in Miami and New York stockbrokers, cocaine is now widespread to the point where there is no one individual market in the U.S. for it anymore. You have students in colleges doing it for, you know, the study potential. You have people and the same brokers and the same club scene people or people who have literally no other purpose to do it other than just pure enjoyment. Cocaine is so widespread in America today that it is more popular now than when Pablo Escobar was at the helm of it. And so it's good to talk about this. I remember back in my first year in college back in CU Boulder where every student was required to attend a session uh, beyond your classes, where they would talk about um, the dangers and the use of cocaine. I'm not sure if they still do that today, but we had a whole seminar about it. So it's not to say that cocaine was an issue back in the day. It is now a bigger issue now than it ever has been. And that that's just the, the, the quick summary of the evolution of it. And it's evolved so prominently and so quickly and so, uh, you know, carefully because of the economics of it cocaine is all about money it is just another product like a pharmaceutical product uh <laughs> fun fact uh, let's go first fun fact of season three <laughs> baby fun fact cocaine up until the 60s was sold in drugstores in america as like a more intense form of coffee basically you could go to your local drugstore um, and buy a cup of coffee or get some cocaine gum or cocaine eye drops. So that's why they call it a drugstore. Yep. Second fun fact for you, at towards the end of his life, Hitler was using cocaine eye drops because his, he was so tired he couldn't keep his eyes open. So cocaine has been very intertwined with the development of humanity in the last hundred years. And it was always treated like a pharmaceutical product. And even today, the structure of cocaine, the cocaine trade is um, mirrors the pharmaceutical industry. So you have uh, massive uh, amounts of people doing the production of it. Then you have a little less people that are doing the refinement of it. And then very few people that are involved in the transportation of it. And then you have the wholesalers. And then you have like the small end dealers of it. It is the exact same like hourglass economic shape as, um, you know, what's a good pharmaceutical, like antibiotics or Adderall or what's another drug that people buy all the time? Like Xanax. Xanax. You know, just like more controlled substances that have similar effects on your brain. Mm -hmm. And so the economics of it illegally are the same as they are legally. It's like a multi-level of economics. But that's the corporate structure of it. There's still this economic value to individuals. And actually, I'll talk about that here in a moment. When it comes to people purchasing cocaine, it's never been about price. It is always about reliability. So yeah, people want a product that they can count on and like that they know will work and you know provide the high that they're looking for rather than, you know, worrying too much about how much it costs. Right. And it's not always like when I talk about the reliability, I don't mean just like purity and like the effects. I'm talking more if I'm a cocaine user, Noah, I'm not going to go to the guy who has the cheapest price. I'm going to go to a person I know who will provide me the same amount at the same price next week. Consistency. Consistency is huge in it because you know 
what like this guy's not going to get arrested so like i'm not going to go to the guy who sells it for ten dollars less because maybe next week he won't be around and the guy i i avoided is going to be mad at me no longer I, I i want to have a sustainable access to my drug and so that is why in the last 30 years noah the price of cocaine has not changed it has remained consistent, even with inflation. Cocaine is the same price. Has it remained consistent or has it gone up? Uh, it's remained consistent for the most part. Certain areas, uh, the price of it is usually determined by the difficulty of getting into that area. Um, and believe it or not, we'll talk about it towards the end of our lesson today, that access to cocaine across the border has actually gotten easier in the last couple of years rather than more difficult, even with us cracking down on it. Um, a good market to compare this to is video games. Video games have had the same $60 price tag for new games for the last, like, what, 10, 15 years? And it's not about produ production and the producers making money off of it, more money because now they can charge more. It's always been about you, the, the user, Noah, of a video game, know that next year when a new Call of Duty rolls around, which it will, you know to, you know to expect it to be $60. Exactly. The reliability of it. And the second, like they tried that this year. I don't know if you guys can tell, but Noah and I are nerds. Uh, but they tried that this year where a lot of game industries tried to go to a $70, $70 price tag. And the, the, black, the backlash of that was insane. A $10 increase over the last 10 years of like inflation rates makes sense, right, on their end. But we as consumers were so frustrated by that that we weren't going to play around with that kind of price tag. And that's the same as you can call with cocaine. All right. Let's talk about the people involved. Who are the individual users and who are the people on the ground level and the corporate structure people, who who are they and what are their motivations in it? And we mentioned that it's all about money a minute ago. Most of the people, and you can't say all because generalizing is difficult, but most people involved in this trade, especially on the production side of things, are not people that are, you know, out to make the world a worse place. They know that their product is not a good thing for society. It is not a good thing for individuals, but a lot of the people that are involved in this trade are people that have no other choice to do it. And we'll talk about Colombia here in a moment, and I keep like pushing the next topics forward, but we'll talk about Colombia. But a lot of the people on the ground level of this, literally, and it's not even like figuratively, have no other choice for financial gain. And when we talk about dealers in America, it's the same story. Yeah, you could tell them, go to school, get a, get a degree, go get a different job. But you've put them in a position where they are pretty much forced to be in this trade, right? Like their father might have done it or their neighbor might have done it. And they're stuck in a position where if they don't do this, they're going to be in the cycle of poverty. It, it almost feels like a way out of poverty for a lot of people. And that's why the individuals do it. And in Colorado... Where we, are, where we are at right now, um, they run a really high risk of even owning a hint of it because any possession of cocaine in Colorado can result in 20 years in prison, regardless of the amount you have. If that's dealer quantity or just user quantity, you can risk 20 years in one possession of it. So the people well understand that this is not a good thing and it's going to bring a high risk. 
Yet, the, re- the financial rewards of it are so vast that a lot of people are going to, you know, negate that fear and go with it anyway. Those are the individuals involved in the production and the sale of it. Let's talk about why the people, the individuals who use it, continue to use it. And so, that we have to go into the, the effects on the brain on a person and the specific effects of cocaine on a person's brain. So, this certain drug, um, <laughs> this certain drug, cocaine, the way it impacts your brain, Noah, is the second you take it, you get rapidly increased heart rate, you get intense energy, you get these feelings of joy and even glee with it. So, what, like euphoria. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing is targeting your like your cerebral cortex and releasing the maximum amount of dopamine that your brain can literally feel. Your brain in that moment is feeling what pure achievement feels like. Something that you may have worked for your entire life, no, like your dream of whatever it is, you know, building a mansion, becoming a successful businessman, whatever your dreams are. Starting a podcast. Starting a podcast. <laughs> and imagine achieving all of your life goals in one singular moment. That is what your brain is tricked into feeling. And that's why it's so addictive. It is extremely addicting. And it's like almost an escape to get achievement for your brain. And that's why cocaine dealers and I guess you could say marketers target people that typically do not have feelings of mass achievement in their life. So I I have a question about that. And this is one that I wrote down for our discussion later, but I I think this kind of gives a a, a good segue into it. Um, Given that cocaine gives you that feeling of like the ultimate achievement and like that massive dopamine response, why do you think that cocaine is so popular amongst celebrities and so many successful people mm-hmm. because many people would argue that celebrities and you know uh, famous people have already achieved that much is it because they're looking to like top the level of achievement that they've already gotten and cocaine kind of gives that to them yeah or how, I, what do you think that so i can't generalize all celebrities but uh, this would be my my guess for it right your brain and every single sentient being on this planet is driven by dopamine this stupid chemical that will tell you, Noah, wake up tomorrow morning, get ready for work, get your job done, get money, because you feel good at the end of the day. And every time you do something rewarding from your for your brain, your brain is like, cool, you earn some chemicals, you feel good now, you feel achieved. Like right now, you and I have had an insanely productive day, and our brains are telling us, good job, here's a reward. However, there's only a finite amount of that chemical that your brain can give you. per day, per week, per hour, there's like a limit to it, right? It's not endless and your brain can't forever feel that same amount of joy or glee, right? And there are certain habits you can get into that release more dopamine than others and you can almost constantly feel exhausted of dopamine. That's why... um, that's why the crash afterwards is so bad is because yes. afterwards your brain feels like deprived almost of dopamine mm-hmm. because being on cocaine kind of sets a new baseline yep. for the amount of dopamine that your brain thinks that it should have. And then when you come down off of it, it's like it doesn't feel like enough. Right. And so with famous people or even like people, average people, um, certain behaviors will trigger higher releases of dopamine. 
that's why in today's era, like we talked about it a little bit with um, Delaney and Gen Z, that certain behaviors, especially amongst younger people that don't know any better, release way more dopamine than actual tasks. TikTok, for example, um, with brain scans will almost, almost, I can't say completely, mirror the use of a cocaine user in the moment that they are using TikTok. Because your brain is not having to work very hard and getting rewarded very easily. And that's why, you know, social media addictions and video game addictions and movie addictions or even pornography is such an issue with that. Because you can get dopamine on command and not have to work towards it. Mm-hmm. And, and more, more dopamine than you should technically be allowed to get right. from that. And then your brain will look at a task that is less than exciting and decide, I don't want to do that right now because I won't be rewarded. That's why, you know, exercise is so difficult for modern Americans. Because it's not instant gratification. It's not. It's something like, you have to work towards. Right, because everyone wants to have, like, the perfect body, you know, the you know the perfect, like, physique and everything. But, mm-hmm. like, having to work for it you're, doesn't give your brain the dopamine. So, it's like you want the reward without having to go through the process of it because exactly. the process doesn't give you that same feeling and it's like setting your expectation and getting ruined by this chemical like dopamine is the reason we are so intelligent as a species because you understand you know reward and effort i know if i work so damn hard and become smarter then there will be a reward at the end that's what makes me motivated to be you know a better person however with these like tricks around it it doesn't take much effort to feel good about myself anymore and like, if you can really boil down like society's problem today, it's literally a mass addiction to instant dopamine and cocaine. And to go back to your main question about it, why do celebrities do it? My guess would be, Noah, that they have so much access to like such a rewarding lifestyle that it just to them doesn't feel as rewarding as it used to. Right. Like man, my first movie or my first show or my first my song. My first, like, red carpet. Yeah, event. like, damn, that felt great. And then the next one doesn't feel as good. Mm-hmm. And so to say that maybe they don't know any better and they want to feel like they did that day. There are moments in my life I can think back on, like, like I had such a dopamine rush that, like, you know, you can, you can account them on your hands, right? Those moments that felt so good. And if I didn't know any better, I'd always want to live in that moment. Yeah. And... That's my guess of why they do that, why celebrities do it. And here's the issue with cocaine. Like, cool, that sounds like a great idea where I can take this dopamine rush and feel the most euphoric as I possibly can. Issue is, it happens once, and that amount of dopamine that you do cocaine the first time will never be matched again. So if you did cocaine tonight, Noah, for the first time, Sorry, I had a hiccup. If you did cocaine for the first time tonight, you would feel you, you would feel the most achieved you have ever in your life. And if you decided, great, that was amazing. I want to do it again, you know, next week. Next week you do it, you're not going to have the same rush as you felt the first time. And so you're going to, and you're like, ooh, that was weird. And then the week following you do it again, and it's going to be less and less and less. Like you said, that baseline is falling right, or rising, however you want to visualize it, and you can never hit it again. That's why there's so much problem, there's such a problem with overdose. Well, I don't feel the same way I did before. Maybe I'm building a tolerance. I need to do a little more and more and more, and then they die. And the issue with cocaine is when you 
focus on this reward center part of your brain constantly, you're not letting the front cortex of your brain really take charge of your life anymore. And your brain is literally chemically changing to the point where it thinks that the real reward in life is this drug and no longer your logic sense saying, no, it, it was just a thing I did and I felt good. It, it's literally telling you this is how you feel good in life. Cocaine is an extreme example of this, um, but a lot of your behaviors can do the same thing. Um, that's why teens have such an issue today than they have before. And like, not to get to a topic we've talked about before, but like the use of technology on a, like a micro scale mimicking this, this dopamine release, it's kind of scary. You're not giving that front logic sense of your brain time to make critical decisions of your life because now any moment in the slightest, I'm bored, I need dopamine. Like today, um, Noah and I ordered Chipotle while we were, you know, getting everything set up here and I was waiting in line and every fiber of my being was like, just take out your phone and distract yourself for a moment. That's literally my brain saying, I don't like the circumstance I'm in currently. I need some reward for being in line. And that's on a micro scale. But the same can be said about cocaine, which is just an extreme form of this kind of addiction. So... <laughs> To kind of bring it all back, that's why the individuals who use it continue to use it. There's a variety of factors that can tell you why a person will initially use it. That's a whole nother ballgame. Like talk about, you know, family history or your circle or whatever. There's a, I'm not going to get into what gets people to do it the first time. That's a whole two-hour discussion. But why people continue to use it and the effects of it on your brain. Unfortunately continuous use of this or even for some people the way your brain is laid out you can create a, an imbalance in your brain permanently from this and that doesn't mean like you'll permanently be tripping or whatever it's permanently your brain doesn't move the same it were it did before and so that's honestly a scary thought for the individuals that's just the use of the brain there's also um, an effect on the metabolism of a patient and a cardiac, like the cardiac, cardiovascular impact of it. Um, your heart can be permanently, I don't want to say damaged, but impacted permanently from this, uh, from the increased heart rate from it. So, yeah, this is kind of a side use of something like this. And I can go on all day about the effects of dopamine on a person. And for people, A, cocaine users or anybody with addictive personalities that, you know, the first thought you have when you get home is I want to watch TV or the first thought you have when you wake up and you grab your phone to look at whatever people have sent you, you're actually doing more damage to your brain. And I don't want to sound like, you know, a boomer here or anything that's like, oh, it's because you're always on your phone. It really is. And it's a scary thought. Like, I love the connectivity I have. But I also recognize the dangers I has on my life. Earlier this morning, I could have worked on getting my grades finalized for the semester. And instead, I spent like an hour looking at memes sent to people, right? And like, I know better than that. And yet, my brain still told me this is more rewarding. And it's little choices like that where having your dopamine consume your life is scary. Um, yeah, like I'm trying to like detox from it in a sense like okay you gotta wake up and go to the gym that's really hard to do when you don't want to go yet and like yeah just dopamine's a fun chemical to work with and cocaine's not the only one that targets dopamine 
we'll talk about synthetics that target um, your serotonin. Dopamine is just part of a category of, of hormones that your brain releases, you know, the, the feel-good hormones. Believe um, there's oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine. What's the other one? There's got to be four. Sam, message me. Let me know. <laughs> Either way, but all of these drugs will target a different hormone that makes you feel good. That's why a lot of the times people will mix their drugs. Dopamine feels great, but I want serotonin as well. And we, we won't, I won't go into those yet when we talk about other drugs we will. Okay. Those are the people who continue to use it. So, Noah, how much would you guess? How many users of cocaine do you think there are in America alone? And we're not talking like active users, maybe passive and active users in America. I bet it's a lot. I bet it's hundreds of millions, I would say. Well, there's 350 million Americans, of which 150 million are adults. Okay. That that narrows it down. I would say, what, like 50 million? About 18 million. Which, that's, guys, I mean, that's yeah, still guys, significant. Yeah. This is 18 million people. 18,000 would be a lot. Having 18 friends over your house is a lot. 18 million. Quick math, that's what? What's 18 million of 150 million percentage-wise? That's like 10%? <laughs> yeah. A little like, more? Yeah, probably 13, 12, yeah, 13%. That's a lot yeah. of people that do cocaine, dude. And in America, do you want to know how much is consumed yearly? Like how, how, how much volume of cocaine? Yeah. And we're tons. I'll tell you that. <laughs> a ton for those of you uh, is 2,000 pounds is one ton. 2,000 pounds is one ton. And we're talking... 1,000 tons? More. 2,000 tons? 2,000 tons of cocaine. Wow. That's a lot of cocaine. And since 2013, that number has doubled in America. So in the last uh, nine years, the amount of cocaine consumed in the United States has doubled. This is becoming like an epidemic on a scale that we can't even like recognize. So far, the cocaine trade between Colombia and the United States together in the last 30 years has killed more people than COVID has. Yet, it's not really a topic that we talk about. I kind of, like, side note here. Do you think that's because it's a taboo topic and people that are involved in the trade are kind of less, like, you know, I don't know who to talk to about it? Or do you think that's kind of like a, oh, I don't care now that I'm doing it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I definitely think that it has something to do with the people that are in the industry not feeling comfortable talking to anyone about it because like who wants to admit that they're you know cocaine. helping produce cocaine which everyone knows is bad like yeah. everyone knows that that drug use is a problem in america and so i think that especially people that um are lower levels you know not pe like drug lords or like people who like are running the operation but people who are just like street dealers yeah i don't think that those people because like you said it goes back to people who feel like they have to like are almost forced to be in that situation in order to get out of poverty. And so no one wants to A, admit that they were in poverty in the first place and they were forced into this situation to begin with. And then also having to admit that you are contributing to, you know, a global epidemic of drugs. So you think, just a side question, like would normalizing the conversation of the effects of drug use amongst, you know, just 
the community level of America would help mitigate the production or the distribution of it, you think, or even the consumption of it. Um, I don't know. I personally know a couple of people that have done it and people that like, you know, continue to use it. And it's not something they talk about. And I'm, you know, not too close with them very much, but like, is that something that would they feel more comfortable addressing? Because everyone who uses it, I, Gosh, I can't say everyone. I would say the vast majority of users know that what they are putting into their body is not good for them. Yet they don't have the, you know, the ability to stop that use. So would normalizing the conversation help? Yeah, I think so. Because I think there's some shame with that, mm -hmm. you know, and people don't want to feel like they're being judged, you know. And so I think that just normalizing that and, you know, especially like I think the older generation has propagated a lot of that shame um you know not only with drugs but with a lot of other things and so i think that hopefully our generation will kind of open up that conversation a bit um kind of like how we did with cigarettes you know how there's oh, like yeah. the whole like truth campaign and all that stuff um just opening the conversation about cigarettes um our generation is one of the least dependent generations on cigarettes ever and yeah. i think it's because we've kind of opened up the conversation about it and so i think if we move in that direction with lots of harmful substances and things like um drugs especially and then also you mentioned pornography earlier as mm -hmm. well i think opening the conversation about that um would be extremely useful and so yeah i definitely think that eliminating that sense of shame mm -hmm. would definitely create um, a more healthy environment for it i agree because at every point in people's lives they will come in contact with you know, either drugs or harmful substances or addictive behaviors of some sort. And oftentimes they stay in it longer than they really need to because they were told their whole life, this is the worst thing you can do. And then nothing more. And a lot of the time they don't know who to talk to about it. And opening the door to this kind of narrative really will help a lot of people out of the trade, you know? And so, I don't know, you and I are just, you know, in some form, small content creators that have talked about it. But I hope that as a society, we move forward into not normalizing the use of drugs by no means, because that is a terrible trade, but instead find a way to start the conversation with it. This is why you're doing it. This is why you need help, but it's I guess it's okay that you are in this position and we are here to support in that sense. So my logic on that. And that was a side note. Um, that's not even part of the notes. All right. So now that we talked about cocaine as a product and on how it works on an individual, let's talk about the production and the supply chain of it. So back in the day when it was still technically legal, uh, majority of the cocaine in the world came from Bolivia and Peru. And when the U.S. decided to classify it as a, um, I think it's a category one or class one drug, so very little medical use, high um, addictive capabilities, we, we and the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, went into Bolivia and Peru and completely shut down the drug trade. And the amount of cocaine that was coming out of it was so minor that we almost thought that we had finished the war, or it wasn't a war yet, but the entire... Um, production of cocaine and in, in coming into the U.S. But there was this 23-year-old 
Colombian man who went into the former Peru- Peruvian um, cocaine labs and he figured out that this same drug that they are making over there can be produ- produced and made in Colombia. This 23-year-old man who very, very quickly became rich and famous in Colombia, his name was Pablo Escobar. And the face of all the cocaine trade that we have in the world, basically, pretty much comes down to this guy. And interesting fact about him, or I'm not allowed to say that, fun fact about him is when he was at the helm of the cocaine production, that's not even a fourth of the, of the trade that we have today. So he wasn't even at the peak of cocaine in the world. But many of you may have heard of him or seen, you know, the show on Netflix, uh, Narcos, or, you know, read a book or whatever about him, but he's really famous in the cocaine trade. Um, when he takes over the trade from Peru and and uh, Bolivia, he transforms the the production of it. Not how it's made, but the levels involved in it. I think it's called um, vertical integration. So... A good example of that is what Ikea does. They have their own trees, their own forest, their own mills, their own uh, designers, their own lumber yards, and then they have their own shops and their own distribution network. That way they don't have to like outsource anything. Nope. And the most yeah. money that people make is being the middleman between production and distribution. Pablo Escobar went in, he's like, why am I paying this you know, Peruvian narco trader all this money when I could do the same thing? So what made him so famous was that he was the producer, he was the man in the labs, he was the transportation and the distribution of cocaine. Was he the tester too? Was he in there like... (laughs) (laughs) He never did his own cocaine. Uh, Towards the end of his life, when uh, things were falling apart and people hated him, uh, his doctor recommended he smoke pot and he said, no, I'd never do drugs. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) So that's why Pablo's name is so famous. And if you've been keeping an eye on our Instagram, which everyone should go follow, you've noticed that a big part of our marketing for this season has been images of Pablo and all that, because he really is the cocaine trade, or what we thought he was. Interesting about him is he made $430 million a week, so close to 500 at times. That's a week. At one point, he was the seventh richest man in the world, and he had no idea what to do with his money, because you can't just go put that into a bank. You have to, because he's doing it illegally, and it's just cash, and he would go bury it, and you can't just put paper and dirt and leave it in the ground. It just rots away. So he was losing like a couple million dollars a day from rot, and he had, and he didn't care in the slightest. Yeah. Man, Bezos got nothing on this guy. <laughs> Dude, for real. Um, he he's such a lavish lifestyle. He would like import trees and birds from Africa to be on his personal like ranch and whatnot, and so the guy had just endless and great mustache though <laughs> we know how much you love mustaches steve yeah great um i would recommend and at the same time not recommend the show narcos it's a great historical um you know account of his life but not the best like quality of content how do i say it uh it's not very pg so if you're not over the age of what, 16 to be rated R? 17? 17. <laughs> so if you're an adult, go watch Narcos. <laughs> yeah. If you're a, a kid, go watch Sesame Street or something. <laughs> yeah, go do your homework that you guys are all behind on. <laughs> but Nar- Narcos, Pablo was um, was very popular. But 
and super, super wealthy. However, it made him a clear and easy target for the DEA. And eventually, once you take this guy down, the assumption is that the whole cocaine trade will fall apart. By the way, I forgot to mention um, his distribution network because that's the most difficult part and the most the part where the price of cocaine comes in is it used to be and is today, but for a period, most of the way you get drugs into the U.S. was you go through the Mexican route and they get through the border. The cartels there would make a hefty buck. Pablo had an entire fleet of his own um, airplanes and they called it the Caribbean route. And they flew from Colombia into Miami so low and their planes were designed out of wood and, and like aluminum so they wouldn't even show up on radars how low they were flying and he had his own airport hidden within the, um, the mangroves of florida and he would just land thousands of pounds at a time without having to pay anyone at it so this guy was efficient at what he did he, he got carried away when um he tried to run for congress i believe and he wins and then this, the image that we've been posting about that mugshot of him, that's what gets him in trouble. That one image that can indict him as a criminal is what gets him in trouble. But as Pablo is the head, and you eventually tear down that head, like with a criminal, it's, you know, they always have to be lucky to get away from the law. But the law only has to get lucky once, and they did. And they caught him. When he was on a conversation a little too long with his son, and they were able to track him down to where he was. From the phone? Yeah. Um, and they initially, I think they get him in the leg or somewhere in the shoulder and he's on the ground and the procedure is arrest him, take him in for, you know, for the crimes he's committed. But the people tasked with hunting him down believed it was way too big of a risk to keep him alive in any form. And so pull out their handgun and they execute him on the spot. And Pablo is killed on top of a, you know, on the, in Medellin in Colombia just shot in the head on top of just some, you know, ghetto area. The man, the seventh richest man in the world, billions of dollars to his name, is executed like a lot of the people that he, like the lives that he's ruined in the same fashion. So it's almost appropriate. The assumption we have, the U.S. and our policy is, well, we've taken down the man in charge of the trade. We've toppled the entire network. Yeah, he vertically integrated it properly and very well. And we assume that when he goes down, the entire trade will go down. However, it was like taking down a house of cards, and rather than all the cards falling flat, each one just stood on its own afterwards. And what we had instead was a much harder drug trade to control. Because now there are so many individual dealers and so many individual cartels and so many individual people involved that you can't track one individual. So it essentially became like decentralized. Completely, in a way. Yeah. yeah. With Pablo, we can put pressure on him in sense and lower production quotas for a week if we had him escape from his headquarters for a day or two, whatever. So we knew how to maintain control over him in a sense yeah. while and he was alive. So going back to what we were talking about earlier with people wanting reliability and consistency, I bet that dropped a lot because, you know, having multiple different um, decentralized productions of the same cocaine, there's going to be inconsistencies with the dealers and with the price and with like the quality of the product and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm guessing that the con the end consumer felt that as well. Oh yeah. Know? And there was like this big scramble to reestablish the trade. And after Pablo's death, cocaine production within two years, no doubles. And 
that wasn't publicized, that wasn't talked about in the U.S. because on our end, that's a massive failure. Every single newspaper, every news channel, they were talking about the death of Pablo. Finally, we've won the war on drugs, or we've at least on the front of cocaine. However, when the Medellin cartel, cartel falls, which is Pablo Escobar's cartel, the, <clears throat> the Cali cartel will take over, which... Again, Narcos has a whole season about that as well. Um, but these guys, they were nothing like Pablo. They were like businessmen and professionals who like to remain in the dark. About so like the Gustavo Fring oh, of yeah. cocaine. And Gustavo is like, uh, he's from Breaking Bad. And just like the Cali cartel, a man who is interested and in men who are interested in simply making a lot of money without the fame that comes with it. Pablo's big downfall was that he loved the power the, you know, the influence that money brought him from cocaine. And to kind of do like a quick character rundown of him, it's really hard to narrow him down as just simply a bad guy. In his mind, the the power that the cocaine money enabled him to do was like to be a better man for his community. And so like when he ran, he often gave out just stacks of money to the people there. He improved like uh, access to water and electricity in his specific region you can make the argument that um, he was doing that just for popularity and votes but at the same time there are more efficient ways he could have done it but he chose that path the cali people never wanted to be on a front page they didn't even want anyone to know they existed and that's what made their trade so dangerous um, and that's what made pablo so vulnerable and these guys they were more willing to be patient and wait for competition to dissipate um, they'd be around for a while, um, and eventually they'd disappear. And what we have today is a little less centralized cocaine trade with a little less big-name Cali's and, and, and um, Medellin, you know. But today in Colombia, cocaine is still the largest exporter, tied almost with coffee. And so how do people in Colombia get involved with this trade even today, which now is 2022? So... Oftentimes, the involvement of cocaine promises wealth. Like we said, there is that pathway out of poverty. In a lot of the ways, in societies and in cultures where um, there aren't very many opportunities, it seems like the only way to get out. And in Colombia, 45% of the population has no access to potable water. Potable means clean and usable for drinking. 30% um, of their population is unemployed. Um, and 80% of the country lives under the Colombian poverty line, which is significantly lower than the U.S. poverty line, which in Colombia, the poverty line essentially just means that there is, <laughs> you barely have anything to survive on. And so there is this opportunity to escape this life where you literally have no water, right? And so... Um, Kids, specifically, are, are groomed from a young age to get involved in this trade, mostly. Um, they are paid about $30 a week to be local delivery people of cocaine. Um, kids. And it's a lot harder for police to, you know, arrest and prosecute children. So the cocaine trade has become almost bulletproof in, in Colombia right now because the locals are really difficult to narrow down. And kids will then feel the opportunity once they get a little older okay, I've been involved in this for eight years now. I can move up the scale and the, the corporate ladder, as we've mentioned already, as in cocaine. But getting ahead of myself here, in a, so let's talk about 
how it actually is made in the first line of our notes when we talked first about this line, episode. First line, get it, because c- cocaine. <laughs> Dang. In the first... Gosh, I'm trying to think of an alternative to line. In the first sequence of words we had for cocaine today, we talked about the coca leaf. And now that it is almost exclusively grown in Colombia, let's talk about the production in the jungles. So, in Colombia today, there are 82,000 coca farmers, 82,000 people employed unofficially in the growth of coca leaves. It is farmed three times daily. So, coca leaves have an insane production capacity, yield. So, coffee, which is the alternative, legal alternative in Colombia, can be harvested once, maybe twice a year under perfect circumstances. Coca farm coca farmers can do it almost half a dozen times. So there is way more profit incentive for farmers. Um, about 400,000 acres are farmed illegally across uh, Colombia. And your average of the 82,000 coca farmers, if they collect about six bags of coca leaves, that will pay them 300,000 pesos a day. And you can, as a good farmer, collect about that a day, which translated from 300,000 Colombian pesos, that's about $90 a day. If you're talking people that have no access to water, $90 a day as a basic farmer is a dream. Like, I would, I can, every student of mine would probably, you know, do everything they can to get $90 a day. That's a lot of money, even for us. Um, but these six bags are very low like yields when it comes to actual production of cocaine it takes about one ton of cocoa leaves to make one kilo of cocaine so two thousand pounds of cocoa leaves make makes one kilogram of cocaine so there's a you have to collect a lot of it that's why there's so many farmers involved so the colombian officials are attempting to break the cycle of these farmers who in their mind are making 90 bucks a day, and that seems like a good life for them. The goal is to break the business cycle and pay the farmers more in a subsidy to get them more money for coffee beans or an alternative. So if Noah, you're a cocaine farmer, and I, the government, approach you and say, okay, Noah, I know you make $90 a day harvesting this coca leaf. Well, what if I paid you $100 a day to make coffee beans? On paper, that seems very logical and like a great trade-off. However, Cocaine or coca leaves are a much easier product to grow. So it doesn't just mean the money involved. It's the... the, the like the act. amount of labor. Yes. Coca or coffee is very unstable in the world market. The price of it will vary very heavily. Um, it takes more water. And better it, soil. I'm better guessing. soil. Yeah. And you need pesticides with it. Coca leaves are literally a weed. You can plant like six of them and it'll spread on its own across and you don't have to like worry about pesticides. The price of it will always remain stable, and it takes less effort to get a bigger yield. So I get that you're giving me an incentive, but I don't care about it. And then their approach is always, okay, fine, but you're doing something illegal. And the locals' the thought is, okay, who the hell are you to tell me what's legal and right when you, the government, can't even provide me with basic services like electricity and water? I don't care what your laws are because you can't even within your laws, give me a proper life. So I, I will feel completely okay with breaking your laws. 
So the money incentive doesn't work, and then the soft like hand approach of the law does not does not work on the cocoa farmers. Um, and to kind of get like technical here, um, a lot of like when I was in college, um, a lot of what we learned about in the international affairs program were rational and irrational actors. So countries can be rational actors, communities can be rational actors, or even individuals. A rational actor means given the circumstance that they're in, you can assume that they are going to do what's in their best interest. Irrational are people that will like, given the same circumstance, don't care what's in their best interest and are going to do what they just like, whatever they want to do. So like giving... So would you say Afghanistan was an irrational? I was about to go into that. Like ISIS is an irrational actor. If you give them a nuclear bomb, they don't care that if they use it, they're going to be retaliated against, right? Or the Taliban, they actually are a rational actor because they care about their self-interest. They might have crazy means and motives, but like they're rational. Um, cocaine farmers are also rational actors. These aren't people that are like benign and benevolent and go crazy and and like... I wouldn't I know benign's not a good word to use that, but they're not like crazy evil, right? They are rational under the circumstances given in their life. They don't have water, they don't have access to get out of the cycle unless they do something illegal. But it's rational. Um Okay. So how do we tackle the farms that are producing cocaine? Um for a while the method was fly planes over the jungle of Colombia and spill defoliants over them. Defoliants just kill vast swaths of plant life. Unfortunately, that caused a lot of cancer. Um, defoliants would seep into the soil, get into the groundwater, and the very few people that have access to clean water, it was no longer clean to them. And so a lot of people were dying from it. So we could not use that approach, which on a grand scale was actually the most efficient way to do things. You just fly a plane over, you can take down acres and acres of it. So now... The battle for the farms is all done by foot, on foot. So squads of DEA, squads of Colombian troops have to go in and manually rip out cocaine plants or coca leaves and throw them away or burn them down manually. And if you know anything about business, the most expensive component to business is always labor. And labor is uh, not accessible and expensive and hard to maintain. So having fully armed, trained soldiers on the ground all the time, taking down half an acre a day, when you're dealing with 400,000 acres, you're doing nothing to the, to the cocaine trade. But that is the only solution we have so far. And it has to be soldiers. You can't just hire locals to do it. Because in Colombia, there is this group called FARC. It's a far-right national group, or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which are always in charge of the Colombian um, labs in charge of cocaine. So they are well-armed and protected, so you can't just send in volunteers to take this stuff out because they will put up a fight. And soldiers are expensive to take this part down. So we're unable to convince them to stop farming. We are currently unable to stop the farming on a mass scale from, you know, forcible means. So when we fail these, not if, when we fail these parts... We go into how do we stop the laboratory side of it. These coca leaves on their own, you can't just mesh it down using like, I don't know, some kind of grinder or weed killer and or weed grinder and make that cocaine. No, it's a whole process using um, gasoline, some like um, catalyst ingredients or whatnot and boiling it down into some fine paste. Um, 
This, yeah, this part is where it gets a lot more money. The cartel will determine the price and they set where they want their labs to be and how much these labs produce. So after the cocaine is brought in, it's grind down to like a very thin, like paste, not a paste, but like a very thin part of their leaf. They add it into like, <laughs> you might think that I'm telling you how to make cocaine. It's so easy, but you, you won't get your hands on coca leaves. And so they get this down into a fine paste, they grind it up, add gasoline, sulfates, I misspelled the next word, so I don't know what I wrote there. Uh, but all, in reality, it's just a slow spinning. It looks like a cement spinner. You know, those like trucks, at least cement trucks. It looks like that on a grand scale. And for hours, they spin it out, sifting out the gasoline, which then primes the, the coca leaves to be more reactive on that, that stimulant side of it. Um, and it's created into cocaine paste, which is now worth $900 a kilo. Six bags equaled $90. One kilo of this stuff is $900. So oftentimes, a lot of the farmers involved in the trade are the same people that make their own labs later. So once we have the paste, it's a very easy step to make into a powder. And this is where the most difficult and consequential part of the trade becomes or gets into, and that's called narco-trafficking. So the farms go in, we can't stop them. The labs go in, they're defended by the FARC group, and we can't, um, you know, go toe-to-toe with them oftentimes because they have heavy firepower. So these guys now have to get this tr- this drug out of Colombia and into the U.S. mostly. Um, try and think of Russia's a big consumer of cocaine, um, and I think some part of Europe, I think Netherlands or Belgium or something. But for the most part, the United States is the largest consumer of drugs, of cocaine specifically. And these narco traffickers have gotten very clever on how to import the drugs into America. Previously, it was, okay, can we just sneak in a submarine full of cocaine and dock it somewhere underneath, you know, some dock and help us get it out? Or how Pablo Escobar did it, full planes and landing them in um, Florida. No, now they've gotten pretty good at like narrowing that stuff down. Narco traffickers (laughs) are equipped with modern technology. They use smugglers, drones, submarines. They use. They found a way, Noah, to synthesize cocaine into car paint, and imported cars can have cocaine in them. What? They will the hollow. Paint? Yeah, they will hollow out pencils, and where the lead is, there will be cocaine. Dolls, statues, shoes. Here's a big one: pregnant women. Pregnant women are less likely, statistically, to be pulled aside by the TSA, and they would swallow upwards of half a kilo of cocaine in bags. And then when they get to their destination, throw them up. What? At a point in Colombia, from their flights to America, half their planes would be full of pregnant women. And they're like, well, we clearly know that this is happening, but you can't just go have 17 pregnant women go throw up in the bathroom and see which one's got cocaine. Issue is, quality control got real bad. And if one of these bags would rip while they're in their stomach, kill them instantly from an overdose. And so, talk about like ramifications of a drug trade smuggling is the most dangerous part and the most critical part because this is where the most money is involved um yeah smugglers are rough however your average drug mule not your cartel leader or security your average mule people that are the lower end of okay you need you to get across from here to here and get the drug to a from a to b makes about 650 dollars a day And you can see why so many people 
risk their life and their entire freedom on $650 a day. That's what people make in two months in Colombia. Imagine making that in one day. What is the average income in America is what, $55,000? You're a payroll guy. What is $55,000 per month after taxes? <clears throat> it's about $1,200, $1,300. $1,300 a month? After tax, or a month? Yeah. Oh, uh, then like $2,600 after tax. Okay. So $2,600 times two? is five thousand two hundred so five thousand two hundred dollars u.s equivalent would be that if these people were involved in it so you can see like why on a financial level this is so enticing that's um that's narco trafficking the process of stopping narco trafficking is called interdiction interdiction is mostly done at the colombian airport and at the largest port in Colombia, near Bogota, is where 80% of Colombia's exports go through and where nearly 100% of Colombia's drug trade will leave. Inter interdiction is where they will go and hang out at this port, legal police and DEA, and physically inspect almost every product that goes through there. We have scanners that will scan through most products to see if they, you know, you know, random bricks of cocaine are hidden inside of a, of a coffee bag. We have bioscanners, which is dogs going through and sniffing if there's cocaine there. My favorite for, uh, version of it is it's like a long stick and it's super thin and you can stab it into virtually anything and it won't like cause damage to the packaging or anything, but it's tipped with this chemical on the end of it. And if it detects cocaine while it's going through, like say a coffee bag and comes out, the tip turns like pink or blue. And so, like, they'll go through and just stab, like, 50 bags at a time and see, like, okay, is there cocaine in there and in there? Um, they inspect about uh, 500 shipping containers daily. So, there, there's a lot of labor involved in this part because our assumption is we can't stop the farms or the labs or the narco people. Hopefully, we can stop them at this bottleneck of the port. How much cocaine do you think is captured a day or a year? By the U.S.? or uh, Yeah. Uh... If there's 2,000 tons a year, mm -hmm. I would say 100? Tons? Tons? Less. 10? Less. We stop five tons of cocaine. Five tons. 10,000 pounds we get. But that also means 1,995 tons will get out. So not even a percentage of this stuff we're stopping. And yet all this effort is put into it. We're talking billions of dollars. Once it leaves the Colombian port, and unlike Pablo's method of flying it or going directly to the U.S., it will always make port in Mexico, the trade right now. Um, when I did this lesson in my classroom, which I'm doing, um, I guess someone who can speak better Spanish than me to pronounce this region of Mexico, it's Sinaloa. Sinaloa. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I always want to, you know, someone who can say with like a good accent, like, mm, that sounds cool. But yeah, this region <laughs> is, uh, has a cartel named after it. And these are the guys currently in 2022 and in, I guess, 2021 have been the, you know, staple of cocaine trade from the narco traffickers into the U.S. These guys are the cartel. When you hear about like Mexican cartels, you know, causing violence in Mexico, it's usually these guys. And at this point today as a filming have no direct competitor and they feel like a 
an alpha predator in a prey like, ecosystem. There is nobody that can go toe-to-toe with them, not even the police or the government of Mexico or the DEA. These guys are armed to the teeth and efficient. Oftentimes, we assume that people involved in the drug trade are low-level idiots who are just in it for a high. But in reality, a lot of the people on the upper echelons of the drug trade are professionals, like masterminds of logistics, masterminds of um, you know trade and safety and security. So they know what they're doing. We're not going toe to toe with a bunch of junkies. These are, you know, a, a worthy competitor. Um, so yeah, after Pablo's death, no longer does any drug go directly from Colombia to the U.S. It all goes through Mexico and it all goes through these guys. When I talked about that hourglass economic model of drug trade, Noah, this is that small point in the middle where the sand barely sifts through. This one cartel is the sole mover of drugs from Mexico. There probably might be smaller competitors, but for the most part, it's these guys. And they make $3 billion annually. They're making a hefty profit. It's something smart I could have done before this episode was compare that to whatever business makes about $3 billion a year. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it in our post show. Shout out to that. Um, yeah, there's no threat to these guys. They are good. There was, um, I was actually, we did a current event in my classroom the other day. Um, 17 police officers in this region of Mexico were lined up in lawn chairs right next to the main highway next to the city hall, all of them with their throats slit and tied to the chair. And those ended up being the only 17 police officers in the entire region that were not paid off by the, the cartel. And that was a message to the rest like, hey, don't get off our payroll. This is what's going to happen to you. They aren't messing around. The drug trade is not just dopamine and money. There's death involved in it because these people are desperate to keep their uh, production of cocaine high. So how does this cartel get across the border? Despite um, popular belief, our border is, you know, secure at points, but mostly very open. And, you know, Trump can promise a wall all he wants, but that's not how this kind of stuff works. The border is, for the most part, just like a wide open plain or a river crossing or a mountain range. And it's pretty easy to walk in and out of. Um, yeah. When the drug enters the United States from crossing the border, even if it's not even a difficult crossing, the cocaine becomes 10 times more valuable. If it's worth $100 here, it's 1000 the second it's over the border. Um, and oftentimes... The drug trade is not, it doesn't look like, you know, a bunch of people putting on backpacks and crossing the border. It is often very well hidden and especially in plain sight. And oftentimes a majority of the cocaine that's imported into the U.S. is done at legal border crossings by truck drivers who don't even know they're transporting cocaine. I like to imagine, because we brought up Breaking Bad earlier, um, great show, don't recommend it if you're under 18, um, viewer discretion advised. Um but the main guy that you and I were talking about, uh, Gustavo, he had this chicken business and fried chicken in the U.S. And everyone loved his chicken. And his key to getting drugs from Mexico into the U.S. was bringing in his signature spice mix from Mexico in truck fulls of like buckets of it. And one cocaine or one barrel of sauce would have like a bag of meth in it or a bag of cocaine, whatever they were transporting at the time. And the drivers of those people didn't even know they had that in there. And 99% of their product was just 
chicken spice. Same, that's actually a reality. Most drivers have a truckload of stuff they're bringing over to America, and it's mostly legal, and they don't even know. They're hired by this company to move it. Um, and there's such low manpower on the U.S. side of border control that we can't check every single truck. We do about one in 10. So if you have 100 trucks go in, you get one out of 10 checks, so 10 trucks, there's a very low chance they're going to find drugs in the first place, so you're getting 99% of your drug product through. And what was the year? 1999 or 2000? Gosh. But when NAFTA was signed, the North American Free Trade Agreement between the United States, Canada, and America, meaning that America, Mexico, and the United States, or in Canada, can now legally trade without any tariff or travel restrictions between the two. The goal was to promote economic growth, but that also meant the amount of product moving between borders had dramatically increased. So if you had a line of about 500 cars a day going through the border, you're now about 2,000 cars. So it's easier and cheaper to get products into the United States. And amongst those, the cartel is going to take advantage of it. And under NAFTA, production and transportation of cocaine in the United States has also dramatically increased. Um, So what was designed to be a beneficial economic model for America has now ended up being, you know, a, you know, the byproduct of that is just increased cocaine trade. But now in our journey of talking about cocaine, it has made it to the U S we've talked about the farms and the economic models, but now it's here. We talked about that also in the beginning of like why people do it, how wall street clubs, students all use it. But there's also more effects that go beyond just the, you know, the the psychological or the, the dopamine and the, the cardiovascular stuff. There are actual societal effects to it. Cocaine may seem like it's just a product to be moved. But reality, the, the, the intensity and the, the severity of the trade and the, the fear of losing out on a good trade is one of the largest motivators for murder. And one of the largest motivators for kidnappings and brutal crimes, simply because this product is so desired and because you don't have to market it and you don't have to advertise it. And it is a captive audience. The people who use your product will continue to come back to do it because there's such an intensity and so much money involved. It's easy to make this so, um, you know such a desired product, and so the people involved in it are going to do everything it takes to defend it. Um, And it will continue to be this brutal as long as we allow it to be as popular as it is. From 2020 to 2021, the, the use of cocaine has gone up in double digits in America, and we are allowing such a system to, to exist. We are continuing... We will continue, there will continue to be demand as long as there's no competition for it or any legal alternative for it. We provide the demand with pl- clubs and parties and students. And with all this demand, we fund the chain of human suffering. Um, it's built on the backs of the poor. And what we're doing is not working. In Colombia, we've spent $10 billion alone to try to stop the production of cocaine. In the last 10 years, we've had over 500,000 people die involved in just the cocaine trade. Prohibition isn't working. Legalization is not an option because that seems like we are giving up. 
And so the question now remains, what can be the possible solution to something that is so powerful, something that is so desirable, and yet something that is so irregulated and not controlled? And if you want to know more about what the solution can be, um, we are going to have a post-episode discussion about this available only to our patreons yes guys so that's the end of this episode but we're going to go ahead and continue the discussion over on patreon so if you want to hear what we have to say next make sure to go and subscribe that'll be available for the seven dollar tier on patreon if you want to go and listen to that episode so go and check that out it's patreon.com forward slash w-i-w-i-l and that will be in the description of the episode as well so we will see you guys in the next episode next week thank you guys so much